Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. It's good for us to be together. And it's a joy to lift our voices and hearts together and praise the creator and redeemer of us. God wonderfully and fearfully made man. And then he crowned him with glory and majesty, as the psalmist has expressed so well. So man's place on earth, our place on earth, is not a matter of chance. You're here and I am here for a reason. So let us begin with this question. Why is your life... Why is your life valuable? Why is your life meaningful? I think all of us could answer that at the beginning and very simply because of God, obviously. It's because of God that our lives individually and together uh, is a meaningful thing and a valuable thing. Each one of us have purpose in this life. But our true purpose and intrinsic value are not dependent simply upon our own estimation of ourselves. It's not dependent simply upon, you know, our own thoughts, our own desires, our our own feelings about ourselves. Now, that does play a part in our makeup But the meaning and the purpose and the value of our lives is not dependent simply on those kind of things. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote and penned these words by the Holy Spirit to Christians, Christians like you and like me. And he says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our relationship changed when we became Christians. And I suggest to you that the almighty choosing to rescue lost souls strongly implies and states that a man's soul is worth saving. You are worth saving. I am worth saving. And as a result, therefore, our life has purpose. God redeeming men is done with a divine purpose. Think about this from this view. God forgives for a reason. And he doesn't forgive just because you're baptized. It's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. And so this morning, I want to talk about the idea of purpose in our life as Christian. When you think about what is a Christian's purpose in being a citizen in Christ's kingdom, God, through his son, has changed you, has changed your relationship And we've come out of darkness into light, into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son of God. Let's begin with this point. Jesus' purpose was and is to be king. 
Jesus came to be king, and he became to be king over that unshakable kingdom that belongs to him. Now, Jesus definitely also came to save the lost. He came to ransom, you know, and give his life for us. Yes, he came to do that. He came to make salvation possible by dying on Calvary's cross. But this salvation of Jesus Christ, the salvation that you and I have in the Lord, is intricately connected to his rule. It is intricately connected to his reign as king. It is something that was predetermined by God long before he became king over this kingdom that we're part of. And for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have God making a prophetic promise to David, King David at the time. And in that passage, it talks about how from the seed of David, there would be one who would establish an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom. And so therefore, in Luke 1, when Gabriel is speaking to Mary about how she is going to have a child, she is going to conceive of the Holy Spirit And one of the things that Gabriel tells her is this role or this predetermined work and position and and role of Christ in verse 32 when he says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, connecting it back to what God had already prophetically said. And verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The purpose of Jesus was to bring salvation to the world, yes, but the purpose of Jesus is to be king, king over a kingdom that is unshakable. And this kingdom is one that is unlike anything that exists in an earthly way, over in the Gospel of John, you're familiar with what Jesus says to Pilate there in the 18th chapter, in verse 36 and 37. Jesus is answering Pilate's questions, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. So that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So the kingship of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus to be, to, to be king was something that is predetermined, but it's going to be different, different than anything that we experience in, on earth in human history. Now, we also understand that God placed earthly authorities and earthly powers and earthly governments on earth for a reason, for a purpose, and ideally as you can read in Romans 13 and also in 1 Peter chapter 2, you know, ideally 
the role of government and the world, the role of worldly, earthly powers is to benefit our lives. It's for the benefit of men's lives in their society. It's for their good. And so in those letters, the Spirit has both Paul and Peter talk about how government is a minister of good or for good, and particularly it is called to justly punish the evildoer and called to justly praise the righteous. And we can see that in the purpose of earthly government, earthly kingdoms. But how much more does the king of kings kingdom personally benefit his citizens' lives? Being in the kingdom of Christ, of Jesus, the son of God, is for our good. It's for our benefit. And we need to understand that, that this is all part of the purpose of Jesus coming and doing what he did, being who he is now and ruling as king of this kingdom. And so this kingdom is a very majestic thing. And the majesty of that kingdom instills in us a very majestic purpose for our lives as well. You know, our existence and our aim are from God. We talk about that, you know, just from the sense of creation. You know, there is value, there is purpose because of that. Because God brought us into being as physical beings, particularly made in his image. And so, yes, we understand that our existence and our aim are from God. But in Christ, though, in the Lord, our true purpose is restored. In the Lord, in Christ, our true purpose is renewed. You know, the world may reject God, and the world may reject God's ways, and the world may reject God's plan, but the world cannot stop God from fulfilling his will. The world can't do that. And one illustration of that is the fact that Jesus Christ did prevail. Jesus, yes, was killed on a cross, but Jesus overcame death. And he is now king. Christ, our Lord, Christ, our Savior, Christ, our King, has prevailed. And his kingdom will prevail likewise. In our study in Daniel, we've already talked about in Daniel 2, you know, the interpretation and the meaning of that dream that God graciously revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar and particularly as it unfolds God's great plan to one day establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom is built not by human hands, but by divine hands. So in Christ, our purpose, our real purpose is restored. It is renewed. And so are you part of that? Are you part of that kingdom? Are you part of that noble calling which is so much greater than ourselves? 
It is so much greater than any worldly pursuit. It is so much greater than any kind of human ambition. Are you, are you part of that? Are you one of the citizens of this amazing kingdom with Christ as your king, and you now have a purpose like none other? If you're not, we would like for you to make that decision even today by calling on the name of the Lord. By faith, rendering obedience to the King, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us now turn our Bibles, our New Testaments, to the epistle of 1 Peter. Why not to, from this point on, focus primarily on this text for the rest of the lesson. As we talk about this idea of what is now our renewed, restored purpose as Christians, as disciples of Jesus in the kingdom. Yeah. And I think First Peter is one of those texts that gives us insight and knowledge about the meaning of our life as a child of God. And so I want to begin here in the first chapter of First Peter at verse 22, and we'll read through the 12th verse of the second chapter. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stones the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this, they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Men's rejection of God's anointed one, their rejection of Jesus Christ did not hinder the rightful exaltation of Jesus as the immovable cornerstone. And you see that, for example, here in the second chapter, when it talks about how, okay, we come to this living stone, Jesus Christ, and yes, men reject him, but what did God do? God saw Jesus precious and choice, and God did what? God exalted him to his rightful place, to the purpose that he came to achieve. Yes, unbelievers killed Jesus. And today, unbelievers would still want to kill Jesus. Some would. But what has God done? God raised him up. God made him Lord in Christ. God exalted him to his right hand. God glorified him. And so here we have this amazing king, this amazing savior in our life, working with us, desiring our salvation eternally. And God says, he is the cornerstone of your life. God's choice in Jesus Christ has now established a nation, a priesthood, a house. They're all the same body of people describing different aspects of that relationship. The nation is a priesthood, and the priesthood is a house. They all go hand in hand, and it's God's choice, Jesus, the cornerstone. That's God's choice, and this choice, Jesus, this cornerstone, has established a nation. He's established a nation of priests. He has established a nation of priests who are God's house. And because you are born again, and you are now a living stone in the living stone of God, you likewise are precious. You likewise are chosen. We are precious chosen because of what Jesus has done and what, and what we have in the Lord. And so you see that in verse 4 and verse 5 here in, second, in the second chapter of 1 Peter. We come to Jesus, the living stone, who is the cornerstone. He's choice and precious in God's sight. And he says, and you also, as living stones, are choice, chosen, and precious. You think about that. You know, the idea how valuable you are to God, how, how meaningful you are to God, and he says, I want you to see that. I want you to understand that about yourself, that you are important, and you are precious, you are chosen, your life has purpose, your life has meaning, even more so now that you have been born again, and now you are one of the living stones 
with Christ. And so therefore, no matter you know, how we may be feeling about ourselves, and you know, we have good days, we have bad days, we, we, you know, you know, sometimes our estimation of ourselves is, is lower than other times, those kind of things that kind of affect our day-to-day you know, moods or disposition about ourselves, well, we need to remind ourselves, no matter what that's going on, God says, but I've given you something deeply meaningful. I've given you a new purpose. And this precious value that's embedded in Zion's cornerstone is for you. See that in verse 7? He just talked about how, okay, you know, the, the stone that has been laid in Zion is precious, and those who believe in him will not be disappointed. And he says, and this precious value is for you who believe. It's for you. It's all for you. How precious that is. To think about how man is, our physical existence is because God created. But more than that, Disciples of Christ are made alive again because why? Because now we are new creatures in Christ. We have been renewed. We have been made new again. And so our purpose is restored. Our value is restored. You know, the meaning of life is restored to us because we have Christ and we are in Christ and we're in the kingdom and being part of this amazing plan brings a very majestic purpose to why we are here for the rest of our days. God planned, God executed that plan, and then God draws us near to him through that plan because he has something in mind for us. He has something in mind for us. And so what is that? Well, in one sense, there is this idea, our restored purpose is rooted in the fact that God possesses a people now, that we now belong to God. We are his people now. We are his children. We are his family. We are his nation. And as recipients of mercy, we now belong to God. And what a beautiful thought that is. You know, we may be feeling alone one day. But if we are in Christ, we are, if we are one of those living stones in the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, we belong to God. We are God's child. He has chosen us. You know, this precious value is for us. He has redeemed us. He has cleansed us. He has brought us into fellowship with him. We belong because God redeems. We belong because God adopts. And so that nation of people is his house. It is his priesthood. In Revelation 1, as you, you know, are reading the introduction to that you know, amazing book, you know, Jesus is said to have made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Christ has made us his kingdom. What kind of kingdom? A kingdom made up of priests. 
You know, our creator's dwelling is not within four walls. He doesn't live within four walls. Our creator dwells and lives and walks among his people. His fellowship is with his children, with his family, that described here in 1 Peter chapter 2 as a nation, as a priesthood, and as a house. This spiritual sanctuary of Jehovah is a covenant relationship for us. It's for his citizenship, citizens of Jesus Christ, so that they would minister to God as priests. You see that particularly in verse 5 and in verse 9, when it talks about how you as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And he comes back to that again in verse 9 when he says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies. God has made us a king to be a kingdom And those citizens in that kingdom are priests who are called to minister to their creator and to their king. Now, holiness, holiness is the overarching attribute that must be present and must be practiced. And you see that being brought out in in this text when it talks about a holy priesthood and it talks about a holy nation. So definitely holiness must be an attribute, a characteristic that is embedded and is exemplified by his priests, by his citizens, by his people. And there are a number of passages that clearly emphasize the Responsibility we have to seek holiness, God's holiness. In the same book, in chapter 1, you see there in verse 15, he says, Like the Holy One who called you, he says, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Or over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where it talks about how we, we have been called by a holy calling. And so, therefore, we're to walk worthy of that calling in the cornerstone. Or in Ephesians 4.24, when it talks about us being a new man in Christ, being a new creation in Christ. You know, so the, the new man in Christ is created in accord with the holiness of truth. So clearly, holiness is this overarching you know, attribute that is to be present among those who have this renewed purpose, restored purpose in Christ as image bearers of the creator. And we are to be a holy priesthood. We are to be a holy nation. We are to be a holy house. But how do we do that? How do we go about doing that in a practical way? So we can talk about conceptual things and the magnitude of what those things imply. But how are we to live daily unto this kingdom's holy purpose. But I believe there are four things, four major points that are brought out in the reading we had today. The first one is found there in 1 Peter chapter 1, as you're starting there in verse 22, where we are called to fervently love from the heart fellow citizens. 
He says, so he's addressing those who, in obedience to the truth, have purified themselves for this purpose. This is one of the purposes we have as a holy people, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, and a holy house, is we are to love. Obedience to the truth is a call to love. Even persons that you might not have loved before or maybe in person with whom you have not associated previously. You think about in Galatians, the idea of the oneness that unites those through faith in Christ and the different background, the different uh, social different, all these things that make us different, but suddenly those things are set aside. And now we have obeyed the truth. We are added to Christ and What comes with that is this purpose, this meaningful purpose of love. A call to love all those who are fellow citizens in the kingdom. To love all those who are fellow priests. All those who are fellow children in God's house. Chapter 2, I think, he illustrates, you know, how will that you know, manifest itself in loving one another, loving fellow citizens? Well, that means, okay, we put away certain things that would harm that relationship. In verse 1, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so love removes those kind of you know, sins from our life things that can sometimes creep back in and sometimes cause problems. And so, first of all, how do, how do I, you know, face this challenge of living this new purpose as a priest, as a citizen, as a child of God? He says, well, he says, love. Love fervently those who are fellow citizens. Secondly, There's a call that we are to feed ourselves with the imperishable word of God. And you see that also at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, like like babies, you need to be longing, hungering, the pure milk of the word so that you will grow in respect to salvation. Spiritual maturity will not be achieved without proper spiritual nourishment. We will not grow without the proper spiritual nourishment. And that's true physically, but also even more so spiritually. And so I think there's a call here that we need to intentionally, each one of us intentionally be reading God's word. And we need to be intentionally studying God's word. And we need to be intentionally making the applications of the instructions of God's word that we are reading and studying. And so, therefore, feed yourself with the word of God. What word? Well, it's the word of God that's imperishable. It's the very word by which you have been born again with. It's the word that is going to endure forever. It's the word that has been preached to mankind in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, we're also called, in the sense of this restoring, renewing of our purpose as now citizens and priests of God. You know, there is this call to offer acceptable sacrifices to God. And you see that in verse 5 and verse 9 and following. Offer acceptable sacrifices to God. What's a sacrifice? Well, a sacrifice 
is something that's going to cost us something, is it not? Or it's not, or then it's not a sacrifice, is it? And so there's a cost in this sense that when we're offering sacrifices that are acceptable to God, spiritual sacrifice, as he says in verse five, it needs to be costing. What is the sacrifices that God wants from us, you know, that he will accept? What kind of sacrifices are, how's it gonna cost me? Well, I think it's gonna cost us in the sense that it's gonna cost our heart. It's gonna cost our will. It's gonna cost our energy is going to cost our time, is going to cost our finances. There's all kinds of ways when we are offering acceptable sacrifices, true sacrifice to God as his beneficiaries of mercy, as his priest, as his people who now suddenly have this restored and renewed purpose in the kingdom of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, he says, okay, there are some sacrifices that you need to be making. I think it relates well to when Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. When he says, we have to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and then follow Jesus. There's a cost in that, is there not? There's a sacrifice in that, in being a disciple of Jesus every day of our life. Now, sacrifices will include this idea of proclaiming God's excellencies. You see that in verse 9. He says, okay, God, you are this now. This is what your life is. This is your purpose now as a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus, to proclaim God's excellencies, to proclaim his greatness. I think also to acknowledge the fact how you have been blessed, how I have been blessed. Particularly, you see that in verse 10. Okay. Before you were, you were not God's people, but now you are. And what a precious gift that is. Before you had not tasted of the goodness of God's mercy, but now you have. And so when we understand that, we see these are the kind of sacrifices that we need to be making toward God that express the greatness of God and express our gratitude toward him. But it's something that's not just in words. It's not just our words that we offer that communicate that, but our deeds as well. Hebrews chapter 13 gives a very quick example of that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, where it says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is through Christ, our King, our Savior, our cornerstone, Through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So clearly our words are to be acceptable sacrifices to him. But that's not all. Because then he goes on to say, not just in words, but also in deed. He says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And so our sacrifices need to be costing us because that's the nature of a sacrifice. And we do so through the words that we communicate to God, but also we need to be doing so through the deeds that we exemplify in our life. I think when I think about this, this is where I, I see the value and the importance and the necessity of the idea of congregational assemblies, us joining together 
on a regular basis to prioritize this in our scheduling of time, that we set aside time for God because God bought us our freedom. God, through his son, paid the price so that we can be recipients of mercy, so that we can be his people. But then finally, we exemplify and illustrate holiness as our purpose in life by being an example to others. And by abstaining, particularly in this context, it says abstaining from those fleshly lusts that are talked about there in verse 11 and 12. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe, may glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, God's mercy does not grant us liberty to continue to gratify ourselves with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Being recipients of the mercy of God doesn't, does not give me the freedom and the liberty to go ahead and do whatever I want and not consider that my God is holy and therefore I need to be holy in my behavior as well. For example, in Ephesians 4, verse 19, it talks about the, the contrast between the life of the Gentile world and that of the renewed life in Christ. And clearly in you know, chapter 4, verse 19, we see that we are not being holy if we are being sensual. We're not being holy if we're being impure. We're not being holy if we're being greedy. Those are the ways of the world. That's not holy behavior. No, we have been called to a greater purpose because we are now citizens of an unshakable kingdom. We are stones connected and aligned with the cornerstone and therefore we need to be holy in our behavior. And so you have those very familiar words in Galatians 5 when talking about the works of the flesh, the works of the flesh, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Think about here in Galatians Galatians chapter 5 that he's talking to Christians. He's reminding Christians these things. He's not just talking to the world. The world has come out of darkness. He's saying, Christians, if you continue in these things, you will not inherit the kingdom in the end. And so he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, verse 20, 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, and drunkenness, and carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. So Paul is not, you know, telling them something they didn't already know, that they hadn't already heard. You know, I, I have warned you about this even previously, but I'm warning you again that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how are we to live unto this new restored purpose as a living stone in this priesthood of God, in this nation of God, in this house of God? Well, Fervently love, feed yourself with God's word, 
offer those sacrifices that are worthy of God to receive from you and be an example of holiness in all your behavior by abstaining from the things of the world that separate you from God. This task of pursuing this purpose, this meaningful life in the kingdom can be at times when we think about it quite daunting, somewhat overwhelming. But with God and with Christ, you can. It is possible. God's love and God's mercy and God's grace makes it possible, no matter how daunting the task before us feels like at the moment, we can be a new creature in Christ. Because remember, as beneficiaries of God's mercy and as beneficiaries of God's light, our restored purpose is all about God. It's not just about us. It's about God. And it's for God. And God says, you're important enough to me. You're valuable enough to me. I love you enough that I sent my son to be your atonement, to be your propitiation. God says, Jesus is my lamb for your sin. If you believe Jesus be the Christ, the Son of God, but you've not rendered obedience to the gospel call of Jesus, we want to encourage you to do that today by faith to make the decision to commit your life to the Lord and King and Savior Jesus Christ. Because until you do that, you are outside of Christ, you are separate from that kingdom, and you are not yet one of God's children. You're not yet one of Jesus' disciples. But you can be. By reading obedience to the gospel call. By faith, repenting of the sins of your life, confessing that faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and being baptized into Christ. If we can assist you to do that today, we would greatly rejoice and celebrate in this commitment you would make in calling upon the Lord's name. If you are a child of God and there is something in your life that separates you from God, we encourage you to make that right. Make that right to him this very day, this very hour. And if we can help you with that, if we can assist you in that, We ask you to come forward, make your wishes known while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.